So let's pick up in verse 24 of chapter 13. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, or while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and they said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? Or did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The parable of the wheats and the tares. Well, what are tares? We know what wheat is. It's made with you know, bread, wheat bread and stuff like that. But what are tares? Tares are probably what the Jews called darnel. It was called darnel. It was a poisonous type of ryegrass that looks like wheat. It grows up next to wheat. It's hard to tell the difference, but there's no grain or no head of wheat that forms on top of it. There's nothing that forms there where the, where the, where the grain or the head of wheat is. There's nothing that forms on the tares. Sometimes it's called false wheat. And if you wanted to sabotage your neighbor in some way, you could sneak into their field after they had sown wheat uh, for their wheat field, and you could spread the seed of tares. And the tares would grow up alongside the wheat. They would suck the nutrients out of the soil, and they would be very, very difficult to distinguish because they looked very much alike, but in the end, they would be easy to tell apart. They were hard to tell apart in the beginning. That's why you couldn't risk pulling them out. Why don't you just pull them out? Well, because if I pull them out, I might uproot some of the tender wheat that's growing as well. So I've got to leave them growing together. But give it some time. Time reveals a lot of things, doesn't it? Let them grow together. You'll see the fruit that they produce. You'll be able to see what, what's coming out of them. And eventually in the day of harvest, the tares will be easily distinguishable because they will have no head of grain. There will be, we can say there will be no fruit. There's, there's no value to them. They're, they just look like wheat. They really weren't wheat. There's no, no true value there. The true Christian will have a life of substance and there will be fruit in their life. In this parable, Jesus is telling us that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's growing in the midst of an evil world. The wheat and the weeds, good and evil, grow side by side. The wheat and the tares, they're growing side by side. Kingdom living requires patience. It's not until the end of the age that the harvest, or the harvest, that God brings judgment and separation between the good and the evil. Just like the farmer at the end of the, at the harvest season would separate the wheat from the tares. This is not what the Jews expected from the kingdom of heaven or from the Messiah. They believed the kingdom of heaven would bring instant judgment and separation. But that's not God's plan. And Jesus is going to give us a full explanation of this parable when we get down to verse 31. Or I'm sorry, down to verse 36. But before we get there in verse 31, he lays out another parable for us. And we'll, we haven't, we're not done with that parable completely. We'll get back to it when we get down to verse 36. Verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, 
which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Again, Jesus is clearly talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven here. He says it's like a mustard seed. And the mustard seed was a very small seed. It was what they used to, it was, a, it was common for them to use to describe anything small. It was small like a mustard seed, they would say. It was, a, it was a common phrase. Well, many people have criticized this parable, and they've even said the Bible is inaccurate. They said because the mustard seed is not the smallest seed that's contained in the world, there are other seeds that are smaller than the mustard seed. And they've said, well, see, look, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. He couldn't have been God because there are other seeds that are certainly smaller. We know that. This is why the Bible is inaccurate. If you want to hang your eternal destiny on that, go right ahead. I wouldn't suggest it. But what I would suggest that Jesus is talking to a specific group of people in a specific region of the world. And they were very, they were an agrarian society. And I would suggest to you that the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they planted on a regular basis. Sure, I'm sure there's other seeds out there. I don't know what they are. I couldn't list them for you. But in their culture, it's pretty well believed that the mustard seed was the smallest. When they would plant something that that little, they, they would something was small, it was small. You mean like a mustard seed? Yeah, that's small. Tiny, minuscule. Have you ever seen one? They are, they are pretty small seeds. But there are others out there. You see, the most common meaning of this parable, it likens it to the church. It talks, it's referring to the church. The church would grow large, but it's going to start out small. It would eventually grow into large mustard seeds. Will, and then people say, well, mustard seeds don't really grow into trees. They grow into more bushes. And some scholars have suggested that there's certain mustard seeds over in that region that would grow 15 or 16 feet high. And others have said, well, maybe this one grew really big. Whatever the case is, he's just taking a story and he's putting it alongside of a truth. And we're left trying to figure out what he's talking about. So what happens is this parable is referring to the church. The church is going to start out small. The kingdom of God is going to be found in the church. It's going to start out small and then it's going to grow larger. But he also said something interesting about this tree or this bush, if you want to call it that. He said there was going to be some birds that would come and nest in the air. There'd be some birds. And birds, if you know, in the scriptures, they, they represent demons or evil forces. And the church would grow large. But there would be some evil that comes into the church as well. We certainly know by church history that's true. That's certainly something true. But I want you to consider for a moment the ministry of Christ. Did it start out small? Of course it did. It started out very small. He was limited to a few years of his life where his ministry began. It started out small. He was confined really within just a few square miles. He didn't travel the world sharing the scriptures. He was confined just mainly to the region of Galilee other than traveling up and back and forth to Jerusalem, up and down the Jordan Valley. He was con contained to the area of the Sea of Galilee in that region there. It started out small. It was only a few years. It was almost completely. Do you realize that the ministry of Christ was almost completely overlooked by secular historians of that day? It wasn't, there wasn't much recorded about him. We have Josephus, who was a Jew. Obviously, he knew some, and he went to Rome later and would write about it. But there, when you look at the other secular historians, there's not a whole lot written about the time of Christ because it wasn't, it wasn't spread throughout the world at that point. It, had, it, it hadn't gone that far yet. It started out small. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Isn't it amazing that he didn't leave behind an army of men? Who did Jesus leave behind? About 120 terrified people in an upper room, didn't he? Is that who you would want to leave your ministry in the hands of? They were praying, though, weren't they? They were praying. He didn't even leave behind an instruction manual. 
Well, yeah, we've got the Bible. That didn't come until later. He put it all together as they were going through this for them. It started out as a small ministry, but yet here we are a couple of thousand years later. Most of us, I think everyone, most of you guys I know were Christians studying the word of God, studying the life of Christ, taking the things that he taught. It's gone around the world and back again. His, his ministry started out small, but it continues to grow. I love reading the stories of how Christianity is sweeping through China or sweeping through the Middle East in Muslim countries. I love the fact that our radio station has just as many people listening in, in England every month as we do over here. Or it's pretty close, isn't it, Kevin? Same thing. Yeah, you gave me a thumbs up. We have other countries that are listening. We've, heard, we've had Korea tuning in. We've had um, some of the other Muslim countries tuning in. We can see who's, where they're tuning in from. The word of God is spreading. The ministry of Christ is still continuing to grow. And I like how it does it. Isn't this how the Lord, the kingdom spreads? It grows slowly. God begins with nothing, just a man. A vision, some faith, very little backing or numbers. And God grows his work subtly. A little bit here, a little bit there. It's kind of how our church started. When I tell people that our church, how long have you guys been there? Oh, we've been in Cumberland 10 years. How long has the church been there? We've been in where we are now, six years. Is it six years or five years? Six years, I think. Six years. Yeah, we started our Bible study nine years ago. Wow, I didn't even know you guys were here. That's because the Lord didn't want you to know. And we haven't been out promoting it. We've been letting God do the work. Let, let God bring the people. We, want, we only want the people that God wants here. I don't want to build a church any bigger than God wants me to have. I want it to be that way. Let him be the one that brings the people. You'll find out when it's just the right time if you're supposed to know about it. Now look at verse 33 as we see another parable. Another parable he spoke to them. He said, in this one, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This one talks about three, heaven is like, is, is like leaven. She hid it in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Some people, when they look at this, they say, well, the three measures of meal. Some people say, well, that was an extraordinary amount or an extra large portion of, of, of meal that she was preparing for the day. Other people say, no, no, that's just, their, that's just a common amount they would use for the day. They would, they, they would just, she just got her daily portion of bread. It's, for, it's what the average Jewish home would prepare in a day. Remember, their large part of their diet was bread, was, was made with, with flour. And the leaven was used to make it rise. So what does this parable mean? And as I studied it, I looked across it, it seems to me that, that this, this three measures of meal and eating and preparing food, it's something a woman does. Any, any women, moms cook all the time, do you know that? I watch my wife cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and by the time she gets to bed and does the dishes, the next morning when she gets up, there's still a sink full of dishes because sometime between 9 o'clock and 7 o'clock the next morning, there's been dishes piled up in the sink because kids are still eating, and dads. But we're still eating. It's piling up. There's always something done. It, and I think this is speaking of her, the routine, the everyday life. It's the measures of meal was this daily portion. It's their routine life, the common life, their mon, every day, the Monday. You ever, you ever remember Groundhog Day? The same thing. Do, you, do your lives ever feel that way sometimes? I do the same thing over and over in this routine. But what is he saying? He's saying like leaven permeates and affects dough, the kingdom of heaven will permeate and affect your everyday life. Or it should. 
Like the, like the leaven, you put a little bit of leaven in a dough to make it rise, and pretty soon it's affected, it's gone everywhere. The kingdom of heaven is going to be like that. It's like leaven in a meal. It should be affecting or permeating everything that you do. It should be affecting the way that you live your life day to day, moment to moment, the way you interact with people, the way you serve at your job, the way you work at your job. Does the kingdom of heaven affect your everyday life? Does it affect the way that you talk to people? Does it affect your attitude? Well, it should. I realize that we're not perfect, but it should affect our attitude. We should realize the kingdom of heaven is among us. Does it give you hope? You see, leaven is also used in the scriptures as a picture of sin and corruption. And some people have looked at this parable and they said, well, it's sin and corruption here. I think it's a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I know what that means. You're talking about a little bit of sin can, can permeate and, and affect everything. And some scholars have suggested that Jesus is saying sin and evil have permeated the kingdom of heaven, which is represented here by the church. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think so, although it's possible. You know, again, this is not one that Jesus interpreted for us, so we don't have the exact understanding. But I don't think Jesus is talking about whether the leaven is good or bad. I think he's talking about the permeation process, how it affects the meal that it's placed in. It's affecting everything it touches. The kingdom of heaven has the power to permeate your everyday life, and it should. And Matthew also there reminds us that by speaking in parables, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He's doing this as a fulfillment of prophecy. It's intentional on the part of Christ. It's not just something that he thought, oh, it would be fun to tell stories today. Let me tell some stories. No, this is part of prophecy being fulfilled there as he quotes from Psalm 78, verse 2. It's intentional. He's fulfilling the messianic prophecies that the Messiah should fulfill, and now he's fulfilling them. Now look at verse 36 as Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and the tares that we read earlier. Then Jesus said to the multitude, he sent the multitude away, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. I like this. Because you know they were too afraid to raise their hand in front of everybody else, don't you? You get that way too. Like they, they have a question. They're not sure. and They're not sure what to do. And, and they don't ask them. And they don't want to look stupid. And we feel the same way. But we're going to get them alone later. And we're going to ask them about this one. So they do. They get them alone and say, hey, hey Jesus, can you... That, that, wheat, that, 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 that wheat and tare thing. I, I need, we need a little more understanding on that. Can you give us a little more understanding? And he does. Look at verse 37. He's so faithful. He answered, he said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of age and the reapers are the angels. He makes it so clear. Therefore, as the, did you notice how the two that I had to explain are kind of like, well, okay, I think you got it right. You know, I, I th okay, it could be, but yet his is so perfectly clear. He's telling you exactly who it is. Verse 40, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Wow. He makes it perfectly clear. Jesus is the one sowing the seeds. He says the field, that's the world. 
The good seeds, those are the true Christians. Those are God's people. That's what he's talking about there. The tares, those are the false believers. Those, they may look like believers, but they're not really believers. They may look like Christians. They may act like Christians, but they're not really Christians. Instead, what are they? They're sons of the wicked one, he says. Sons of Satan. There's an enemy who's mixing his people among God's people. Isn't that interesting? The angels will gather the tares and they will be burned. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That as we sit in a group of Christians that think that the enemy would put people strategically in places to tear apart what God is doing, to come against what God is doing. And, and you think that, look at it, the church corporate sense, God would bring someone into a church to try to destroy the church. Don't you know that to be true? You ever been part of a church that's been divided? You ever been part of a, part of a church that's gone through a very difficult season because a person or a group of people have brought the whole thing down with their We'll call it their leaven, maybe. It's permeated. It's affected everybody. That's what he's saying. This is happening right there. And this is slightly different from the parable of the soils that we studied last week. Although he's talking a little, it's similar, it's different. In the parable of the soils, the seeds represented what? The word of God. They represented the word of God. Here the seeds represent, what did he say? The true believers, the Christians, the, the, the true sons of God. And although they're similar, they have different meanings. The parable of the sower showed us how people will respond to the word of God. The parable of the wheat and the tares show how there will be true people of God and those who look like people of God but really aren't believers. But in the end, they will be divided at the end of this age and those that really belong to Christ will be in his storehouse and those that don't will go, where did he say? To the fire, furnace of fire. The lake of fire. What did he describe it as? Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The kingdom of heaven and also the opposing picture of hell there. You see, there's a clear teaching that says there will be those who are outwardly non-believers. We all know people who reject Christ. They want nothing to do with Christ. That's not who he's talking about here. Who he's talking about here, there'll be those people who, are, who appear to be believers. They appear to be followers of Christ, but they're not. They're not. They're, they, 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 they look like they might be followers of Christ. They're in the church. Well, how do we know the difference? We can't. We don't know the difference. We can look at fruit and kind of get a guess, but we don't know the difference. The, Lord, the Lord's going to handle this. Did you catch it? Who's supposed to do the, the separating? I'm going to send the angels out to handle this. When? At the end of the age. Why shouldn't we weed them out now? Because they might turn into true believers. They might just come to Christ. They might. They, might just, they may have been for the wrong reasons. You see, in the church, we can't know the difference, but we can know that the Lord knows the heart of every individual. It's possible for someone to fake their way into Christianity and never know the Lord. It's possible for someone to come to church every day of their life. They think they know Jesus. Their family knows Jesus. They were raised in a Christian home. They know all the Bible stories. They know all the scriptures. They know more about the Bible than anybody else, all the other kids perhaps, or even all the other adults. But they really don't know the Lord. They really don't have Christ dwelling in them. They've really never given their life to Christ. He's just something else that they have information about in their life. What a scary place to be. How scary is that? Because they've, maybe they've been raised in a Christian home and they've never really done anything wrong. You know, their only experience with drugs is being drugged to church every Sunday. <laughs> Who knows? They've never done anything wrong. They, they don't even really know what, what, what true repentance is. Yet they're part of the church. They're part of a ministry. They're serving in a church, perhaps. 
yet their heart's not really there with them. Isn't that a scary thought? You say, Rob, what if that's me? How do I know? Listen, if you're saved, you know you're saved. You don't have to wonder you're saved. I don't believe that you're going to lose your salvation like you lose your car keys. That's not a freedom to go sin however you want. But listen, if you're saved, you know it. If you don't know that you're saved, you've got to really ask the question, am I saved? Well, tell me if I am. I can't tell you that. That's between you and him. I can tell you that I'm confident of my salvation. I'm sure of it. And I can tell you other people I know are sure of theirs too. But you have to work on yourself with the Lord in that. Have you, you know, is there fruit in your life? Is the Holy Spirit birthing fruit in your life? That's something you have to figure out. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, magistrates and churches may remove the openly wicked from their society. The outwardly good who are inwardly worthless, they must leave. For the judging of the hearts is beyond their sphere. As long as God's people are still in the field, as long as they're in church, as long as they're in the world, there'll be unbelievers among us. As long as the world is still going on the way we know it, there's going to be unbelievers, both out there and in here. Should it surprise you that some people would come to church as an unbeliever? Of course they will. They'll come for moms and dads and special events and all that thing. Well, what if there's someone here like you're saying, Rob, that, that someone says they're, 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 we don't know if they're a believer. Listen, it's not our job to weed them out. It's not our job. Now, it's, it's different. We don't accept someone living a sinful lifestyle, and church discipline is sometimes necessary and must be administered. But it's not our job to go around saying, well, I, I don't know if you're really saved or not. That, that's, that's between you and the Lord. That's between you and him. Let the Lord sort it out when? In the final day. Why, why do we wait so long? Let's sort it out now. No, we're waiting because there's those that might not know the Lord. Because just, so we can, just like we can say it's possible for someone to sit their whole life in a church and not know the Lord, it's also possible for them to come to know the Lord one day. And the Lord's still working on those people. He's still, he's still revealing their heart. He's still revealing their true motives for things. He's still, just like he's still working in our lives, he's still working in their lives as well. And we don't want to throw them out. We don't even know who they are because I am convinced that we would get that all wrong. You know, I am convinced that when we get to heaven someday, you're going to look around and go, hey, I thought so-and-so would be here. They, they look perfect. They, they did everything right. They had the perfect family. And you're going to look at other people and you're going to look and go, how'd you get in here? I didn't think you'd be here. What are you doing here? You see, the Lord knows our hearts. And we can be pretty good at faking in front of each other, can't we? We can paint, make our lives look good. We got Facebook. I can tell you how great my vacation is and how wonderful my marriage is. I can, I can paint all kinds of pictures about who I am and how perfect my life is. But the Lord knows what's going on in your heart. He can see farther than you can even see. He knows what's there. He knows the true you more so than anybody else knows. As long as we're here, we keep pointing people to the Lord. When it comes to the body of Christ, don't try to figure out, are they a weed or a tear? That's the Lord's problem. Minister to them while they're here. Don't, don't try to figure it out. Oh, look at you bunch of tares. All the wheat's over here and all the tares sit over on that side next week. No, you don't do that. Let the Lord handle those things. He's going to handle it in his timing. Look at the next parable. The hidden treasure. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field do you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz Boaz was a wealthy man and a landowner in the book of Ruth he redeemed the field of his relative anybody know the relative's name this is bible trivia anybody nobody my wife knows, come on. 
Who was it? Put her on the spot. Huh? Okay. He redeems the... We're all just being shy. We're, we're just being shy. Okay. He redeems the land. But is the land really what he wanted? That's not really what. What did he want? He wanted the treasure. He wanted the girl. He wanted Ruth. That's the whole story. Do you see the picture when it comes to Christ? Jesus redeemed the world. Not because he needed another piece of dirt. Not because there was any special value in the third rock from the sun or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't about the land. He wanted us. He wanted you. He wanted I. He wanted me. I. He wanted us. We're the treasure that he wanted. That's what this parable is saying. He is our redeemer. You're the treasure that Jesus would sell all to have. You're the treasure. I'm the treasure that he would give his life to say I want that. You see, Jesus sees a value and a worth in you that you don't see. Think about that. He sees a value in you that you don't see. Let me put it to you a different way. I learned a lesson when I was a kid. I used to collect baseball cards. And some of the guys, maybe girls too, you collected baseball cards. And back then we didn't have computers, but what we did is every month or every quarter, I don't remember how much it was, there was a guide that came out that told you how much the baseball cards were worth. I think it was the Beckett guide or something like that. And we'd go down to the card shop and we'd get the guide and it would tell us exactly how much our cards are worth. And I've got this card and it's worth $20 and I've got this card and it's worth $10. And I found out very quickly that you couldn't sell them for that. That was what, they, that was what the magazine said they were worth. But every time I would go to the card shop to try to sell my cards, I only got half of what they were worth. So what were they really worth? And I learned very quickly something's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Something is only worth, you can have an old car, you can have a sentimental item, you can say, oh, it's worth millions, only if you can get millions for it. Only if you have a buyer that's willing to write a check for it or to transfer money into your account. It's only really worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. So if your true value is found in what somebody is willing to pay for you, wouldn't you say that Jesus paid a pretty high price for you? If a baseball card is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Much lower than we would normally expect. But our life, it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And Jesus said, I'll give my life for that one. I'll give my life for your life. I'll give up my life. I'll, I'll, I'll leave heaven. I'll come to earth. I'll live. I'll, be, I'll, I'll go to the cross. I'll do that because I value you so much. Because to me, you're that valuable. You see, we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? When we look at our own value, we always look at our mistakes. We look at our imperfections, all of our sin, all of our shortcomings, how bad we are. And Jesus sees who we're going to become. He says, I, I, I want them so bad. I want them to be with me forever. I'll buy the land. I'll, buy, I'll give my life. I'll pay the ultimate price so that I can what the kingdom of heaven is like that's what he's saying there you are of such value he paid the ultimate price to have you yet when we look at ourselves we don't see that value but he sees who you're going to become not just who you are is that not amazing that our savior would do that for us look at the next parable again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl, 
of great price. He went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who went and had found one pearl, just one, of great price. He went and he sold all else because I've got to have that one. Jesus is the buyer and you're the pearl. He's the buyer, you're the pearl. You're the pearl. Some have suggested the church is the pearl. Either way, Jesus sees us as so valuable that he would happily give all for us, for you. Pearls are interesting. A pearl begins as nothing more than an irritating speck of sand in the shell of a, is it an oyster or a clam? Oyster, right? I was thinking clam, but I knew it was an oyster. Oyster. What happens? It irritates, and the oyster begins to coat the pearl with something. What was an irritation becomes something beautiful. It begins to coat it with this crystal-like substance. The more irritating the grain of sand, the more beautiful the pearl becomes. Do you know the pearl is the only gem that doesn't have to be cut before it's put on display? It's left in its natural state. It doesn't have to, you don't have to cut it a certain way. The pearl is the only gem like that. And it grows through irritation. You're the same way. This is, as Christians, this is how we grow spiritually too. Not always, but through irritation. Sometimes we grow in the good times and the easy times, don't we? But when do you grow the most in the Lord? When times are the hardest, don't you? When you have nowhere else to turn. When you have to turn to him. When your health is bad. When things are bad. My, my, you know, there, there's problems at home. There's, that's when you grow. When, when you hit your bottom in life, I, I can't. That's when you turn to the Lord. That's when you grow the most in the Lord. The trying times, the difficult times, they cause us to grow as we rely on the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The kingdom of heaven. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into the vessels, but they threw the bad away. A dragnet thrown into the water, catches everything that get caught, gets caught up in it. When it's retrieved, the fishermen keep what's good and they throw what's bad. You ever thrown a cast net before? You ever thrown a net or even drug a net through the water? What do you get? All kinds of junk. You get all kinds of stuff. What do you, you, you keep what you're, you're, you're trying, you're trying to catch certain things. You're trying, all the junk, you just throw it away. That's what he's talking about. Let me see if I can kind of relate this to Christianity a little bit. When Jesus went through the communities, everybody came out to see him, didn't they? You can imagine as Jesus comes into town, everybody needs to come see him. All kinds of people got caught up in the excitement. All kinds of people wanted to go see what was going on. What's he doing over there? What's going on? They jumped on the bandwagon, if you will, many for different reasons. Some because they wanted a free meal, five loaves and two fishes. Others wanted to see the miracles. Others were truly believers that he was the Messiah, the Son of Man. Whatever the reason was, for some, there was true commitment there. They had a desire to know the truth. For others, it was just for temporary things. It was for entertainment. It was for worldly purposes. They're just caught up in the net. They're all caught together. There are people like that all over the world in churches today, aren't there? All over the world. They're sitting there for the right reasons. Some are for the right reasons. Some are for the wrong reasons. Some are just caught up in the net. They wanted to see what's going on there. Perhaps they like the worship team. 
Perhaps the pastor is funny and entertaining. Whatever the reason is, why do you go to that church? They give me a reason. No, no, are, are you really following Christ or are you just there for the social aspect of it? It's just another club. It's where my membership is. I, I just, it's, I'm just a member of another club. That just happens to be where the one I go to on Sunday mornings. I go to the Lions Club on this night. I go to church on Sunday. I go to another club on another night. It's just, where I, it's just, it's just another club. That's where I get my business, I, where I drum up clientele for my insurance business or whatever. You, you can understand what I'm saying. It'd be, they're just caught up there. What's gonna, what's, what's it, what happens to them? Those that are true followers of Christ, they're kept. Those that aren't, it says we'll be discarded. This should, te- this should teach us to check our motives, shouldn't it? What's your motive for following the Lord? Is, is, is there a true desire to follow? Is there a true relationship? Or is it just for, for extracurricular things? I personally know people that go to certain churches because they want to network and meet people. They can drum up business and, and get clients for their... I, I, if I, generally, if I, I've never seen it here, but if I, I've, I've, if I see you, if I run across somebody and they're using our church as a place to to drum up business, handing out business cards, and I'm going to stop them. That's why we don't sell things in the back of our church. If someone wants to give away something, that's great. But can I sell something? No, you can't sell. Well, this is not a business place. This is a place where we fellowship. If, if you're in, an, in, I'll just use the insurance. If you're in the insurance business, I need insurance and we get together after church, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're not going to come into the church or you shouldn't come into the church with the idea that, well, I'm going I'm to expand my business and I got the whole church. I can tap them for my networking and I'm going to get all their business. No, that's the, that's the wrong heart. You're just caught up in the net. You're there for the wrong reasons. You're not really there as a follower of Christ. You're there for, what are you really there for? Money. I just want to build wealth and I'm going to suck it out of the people of God. That's really what that heart says. They're caught in the net. What did he say in verse 49 when that's the case? So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lots of people will get caught up in the kingdom of heaven. But rest assured, the Lord will sort them all out in the end. He knows our true motives. Please also take note that hell is a conscious place. It's a place of awareness. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. Its residents will suffer a literal agony where he says weeping and gnashing of teeth and it doesn't end. There is no break. We should expect the world will stay divided right up until the very end. It's not going to change. We, it's not going to, you know, the, the church will not reform the world no matter who we put into office, no matter who we elect. You know, we're not going to change the world. We will always be divided. Christ came to, for division. Those that are going to follow, there's, always two, there's only two groups, those that believe and those that don't. And yes, the waters can get muddy, but in the end, it says that the Lord's going to sort it all out. And I like there in verse 51, Jesus says to the disciples, he says to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, "Uh uh-huh. Yes, Lord, we got it. Sure they have. Now, do you think they really understood? I think so. I think they got a lot of it. You know, some people think, well, no, they didn't really understand. Well, there's no, there's no, they asked, they didn't understand the parable of the wheats and the tares, and they asked. There's no reason to think they didn't understand. Maybe they didn't understand to full implication, but, but they certainly had an understanding. And if they did understand the parables, what are they supposed to do with them? They're going to teach them to other people. Look at the last parable there in verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. A householder. What's a householder? It's one who manages or owns a home. 
when they decorate, they put out their treasures, when they bring out their stuff for everyone to see, they bring out some new stuff and some old stuff. I mean, you're going you're gonna to put out some of the, do, do you, in your home, do you have some old, some antiques, some family heirlooms, some things that have been in your family for years? You might have some new stuff, so whatever. What he's saying here is the scribe or the teacher is responsible for instructing and teaching the things he knows, both the new stuff that he's revealing here in these parables, as well as the old stuff. Some have said it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's telling the disciples, hey, since you've got an understanding now, since I've explained this to you, I've asked you if you understood, you said you do, you're now responsible to teach your understanding to others. You've got to share what you know. Some of these things will be old. Some of these things you're going to already know from the Old Testament. Some of these things I'm revealing to you brand new. Do you know that you have an understanding to do the same thing? You have an obligation to teach the things that you know. You, well, Rob, I don't have to get up there like you do. No, but your family, your kids, your, your grandkids, your relatives, teach what you know about the Lord to people. That's the, most, that's the best way to share Christ is to teach what you know. Teach what you've experienced. Teach what you've seen God do in your life. You don't have to get up and pair a message and have points and all that stuff. Just share what God shows you, what you know, the things that you learn. When we receive understanding as we study through the scriptures... We also have the responsibility to share the understanding that we receive. What is it we really doing? We're putting it on display so everyone can see. We're decorating our lives with the scriptures. Think about that. We have an opportunity to decorate our life with something. What's your life decorated with? What are you putting on display so everyone can see? Is it the promises of God? Is it the verses in scripture? Is it the hope that you have? Or is it worldly things? What do you decorate yourself with? You know, when people look at you, what do they see from you? When they talk to you, what do they hear from you? What, what is it that you're sharing with people that you meet for the first time on, a, on the, what do you meet? What do you share with them? You see, we have a chance to decorate our lives. Is your life decorated with the truths and the commands of the Lord? Are you following his commands? I'm decorating my life with obedience? Or am I decorating my life with worldliness? It's a choice that we have to make. Now listen, I want to review this kind of quickly. But here in these series of parables that we've covered tonight, Jesus taught us a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Let me see if I can compress it all down. It begins with the sowing of the word of God, the sharing of the word of God. And the soil or the heart that it lands on makes a difference, doesn't it? It will exist in the world along with evil until the time of harvest. He's telling us that. It starts out small, but it's going to grow larger. And yes, there'll be some evil that creeps in, but God's going to sort it all out. He also told us that it will permeate our everyday life. The kingdom of heaven, the hope, your hope in heaven, your hope in eternity should permeate, should, should affect the decisions that you make every day. It should give you hope and it should give you peace that this is not all there is. He said it's like a field that contains treasures so great that Jesus would redeem the whole earth just to get the treasure. Who's the treasure? We are. We are the treasure. It's so valuable that Jesus would sell all that he has to get that one pearl. That one pearl. You ever collected anything? There was a, when I was a kid, I said I collected baseball cards, and there was a few cards that I liked that I would have sold my whole collection for. Sell so all that you have for that one. That one. Jesus says, I'll sell everything for you, for your heart. What is it that you have? Is there, is there something that you ever collected? Is there something that you, that's the thing that I want. I'll sell everything. I'll give my whole collection for that one. That's what Jesus says about us. He also said, 
with the parable of the net, the dragnet. Lots of people get caught up in what's going on. Lots of people get caught up. But the truth, their heart will be exposed. Those that are really mine, they'll be put, they'll be with me. Those that aren't will be sent to the lake of fire. And he said, once you have this obligation, once you have this understanding, you have the obligation to teach other people. Do you see how he took all this teaching on the kingdom of heaven? You see, the, Roman, the, the Jews thought the kingdom of heaven was going to come down and establish itself right away, instantaneously. And Jesus is saying, no, no, through this series of parables, the kingdom of heaven is among you right now. Here it is. It's starting with me. It's going to grow. It's going to spread. It's going to permeate everything that you do. It's going to travel around the world. There's going to be some people that really aren't believers that look like they're believers. And I'll take care of that at the end. There's going to be some evil that creeps in. Don't worry about it. I'll handle that too. I've got it all covered. What an amazing teaching. Now, we just covered a whole bunch of stuff really, really quick. Like I said, we could do an entire Bible study on each one of those parables, but I wanted to get that overview, that picture, as how he's teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, and he's using these parables to do it. Now, let's finish the chapter there in verse 54. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Do you know what this shows me? Jesus was very normal in his everyday life. Very normal. He didn't walk around with a halo on. There was no angel on either side of him. He was a carpenter. He went to work every day, probably worked in the carpenter shop. I don't know whether he hung doors or I don't know what he did as framed houses, whatever a carpenter would do back then, however they made put roofs on, whatever they were doing. That's what he did every day. There was nothing different about him. In fact, he was so normal when he started teaching under the power of the Holy Spirit, they were offended by him. And that word offended, it means to be angry or it means to be in shock about what's being done. They can't believe it. It's not computing with them. We're so impressed with the message, it can't come from him. We know his family. We know his upbringing. He put my door on my house. He put my window in. There's no way that this person is teaching like that. He fixed my roof. He's not even qualified to speak like that. Therefore, we're not going to listen to him. We're not going to listen to a word he has to say. Wow. Think about that. You ever been, have you ever got to know anybody I can remember when I first started going to church, I thought the pastor was like so spiritual. Like, un, like, I mean, just like abnormal spiritual, like crazy, like he had angels that sang when he got up in the morning and, and, and his, you know, he never had an argument with his wife and his wife was perfect. And, and I, I just thought it was like an amazing, and then you get to know him. And, he, and then you get close to him and you realize, you know what, he's not spirit, he, he's, just, he's human. He's normal, he's just like everybody else. There's, not, there's no difference. And, you know, there, there, it's, 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 it's not anything different. And he says there in verse 57, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Sadly, the people of his hometown couldn't get past his lack of education. They couldn't get past who his family was. They couldn't get past his upbringing, what his career was beforehand. 
They couldn't get past the fact that he wasn't dressed like a Pharisee would be dressed. They couldn't get, they didn't receive the message of God before their very eyes because they couldn't get past who they thought he was. It's not that not sad. As a result, it says, he did not do many mighty works there. Can I encourage you not to ever let and I don't, I don't mean just pastor. Don't let anybody who's ever teaching you the word of God or sharing something with you, don't ever look at somebody and think that their lack of education, they can't teach you anything. Don't ever look and, and prejudge somebody in a position because they're not as educated as you or they're not as financial off as you. Whatever the circumstance, because their life is different than yours, I can't learn anything from them. That's really what's going We know him. He, he has nothing to teach us. This, we don't even want to hear what he has to say. Do you know that Charles Spurgeon himself came to Christ when the pastor was absent and a layman was teaching the word of God? Somebody with no training just got up to teach one day. Charles Spurgeon walked into a church, sat down, and that was the day that he came to know Christ. The Lord used just an ordinary person. It wasn't the pastor, it was just somebody ordinary. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking just because someone isn't like you or they're not qualified in the way that you think they should be qualified. That, and here's what you've got to understand, that God can't speak to you through them. It's not, there, it's not them that you want to hear. It's the Lord that you want to hear. It, it, I, I've gone before to churches, and I've sat, and I've caught myself going, well, I don't think he's doing a very good job with this message. I, I think I could do a better job at this. Oh, he missed that part. He skipped this. Why didn't he cover that? And I realized very, very quickly, are you here to critique the message or are you here to hear from the word of God? Are you here to hear what God has to say and, and don't worry about the message? That's between him and God. Or are you here to go, well, I, I think I could do better and make yourself feel better about myself. That's what, I've done that personally. I'll be honest with you. And I always find myself feeling like, Lord, forgive me. I'm not here to evaluate the message. I'm here to hear what you might have to say to me. And every time I get a chance to sit and hear somebody teach, I try to make it a point. Lord, speak to me. It's not about the quality of the teaching, it's about the Word of God. And if you'll say one thing to me, if you'll minister to my heart in one way, then I've, it's been a success. If I'll learn one thing, if, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be a church that I think is good. You know, it, has to be a, it doesn't have to be a pastor that, yeah, I, I could go to that church. Somebody's teaching the Word of God, I want to hear. At the same time, I have no problem going, well, that's not what the Word of God says. I'm not receiving that either. But that's what's happening. His own hometown, and it even says his own house. I wonder if that means our kids sometimes. I, I haven't had this happen to me yet, but I've heard of other pastors. I've talked to some of my friends where they, they minister to their kids their whole lives. And then the kids go out on their own, they come back and they tell them what some pastor said and how great it ministered to them in their life. And their dad's like, I've been doing that for years. I can tell you, I can play back the messages I told you that. You know, praise the Lord, they get it. But sometimes that happens. You just, you can't hear it from dad. You can't hear it from the neighbor down the street because you know them too closely. A prophet is not always received. There's no honor. is without honor except in his own country and his own house. It's not without honor is what it says. And because of that, it says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Can you imagine, think about that today, walking into a church service and the Lord not doing something mighty in your life because you didn't believe that God could use that person that's teaching. Wow. And you walk out of there and you could have walked out of there completely changed. Whew. That scares me to death. 
I want everything God has for me. I don't want to be left out. I, I, want, to, I want to accomplish all he has for me. I want every, everything that he has. If he's got a, a correction or a rebuke or an encouragement, I want to hear it. I, I don't want to miss something like that. that. That could be the very day that my life could change or your life could change. Have you had those moments where your life does change in a Bible study or in the Word of God where this thing jumps out and it changes your life forever? Can you, th- can you now go back and imagine missing that because you didn't think the person that was teaching it wasn't qualified to teach it? Incredible thought, isn't it? I wouldn't want that to happen. All right, let's pray. Father, as we come before you, Lord, may our hearts always be open. Lord, may we not look at your messenger that you're using, whether it be a coworker, a friend, a relative, a child. Lord, may we not judge the messenger that you're using. May we hear from you. Lord, and may we be open to you speaking to us in different ways through your word, ministering to us, teaching us, instructing us, learning from different people. Lord, may our hearts truly be pleasing to you. And Lord, if we're here tonight and we're not really a follower, Lord, that changes the moment we give our life to you. Lord, may there be no false pretenses. May there be nothing that self-motivation may our heart truly be to follow after you and to seek after you and to please you in all that we do in our jobs and our families and our careers Lord, take all of this stuff from the world away it just gets in our way it just distracts us we've got to be in the world but may we not be of it may we truly come to the realization that we're only here temporarily And as you've shown us so much tonight about the kingdom of heaven, and you've shown us so much about our value in you, that we're worth so much that we would give, that you would give your life for us. Or may that resonate with us as we consider who we would give our life for. And I don't even think that's the full implication of how much you care about us, how much you love us. Lord, it's our desire to please you and to honor you. May you show us and may you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.